I'm Ben Eisenstein, and this is the Campus Retail, coming to you from Coyote Canyon, California. $12 billion. That's roughly how much 20 million college students will spend on textbooks. Scratch that. Course content in the 2018-2019 academic year. That works out to about $600 per student. Now, many would be surprised to find out that after years of soaring costs outpacing even healthcare, that number has dipped a bit in recent years as course materials go digital and students go, shall we say, underground. It's an industry that's been under disruption for some time. Jason Lorgan, executive director of, well, a lot of things at University of California, Davis, has been at the tip of the spear when it comes to how campus leadership should respond to that disruption. Close our eyes, stamp our feet, give it all away to the Amazons and Chegs, find a suitable compromise? Well, let's call in the expert. Here's Jason talk about the past, present, and future of course content, and just how big a deal is piracy anyway? Yeah, so I actually started um, in course materials in 1993 at San Diego State, so I've been doing right. that for quite some time. And I also, in addition to having worked for... Um, institutional stores. I also worked for a lease management company called Follett. So I've kind of seen the course materials space um, in many different formats. And boy, has it changed dramatically over that time period. Um, Really, the biggest change, I think, is that there are really more choices now than there ever have been before. Not just the fact that retail competition has grown dramatically from you know, when I started, college stores were really monopolistic in nature, and they were really the only seller for the most part, with perhaps a web seller or two as the internet was just sort of getting off the ground. Um, to today, there being an unbelievable amount of not just retail options, um, but sort of a, uh, as the retail options have blossomed um, and students have been given more options, many collegiate retailers also sort of shifted focus and started recognizing that part of their role, um, particularly if they're affiliated with the institution um, itself, is to um, get course materials in the hands of students at the lowest possible cost, and that's not always going to be um, with the campus store. So I've seen, you know, the course materials buying experience more from, you know, only really having one choice to that choice now actually providing price comparison services on its own websites and showing students, you know, not only the institution's price, but also the price of a lot of um, additional competitors at all, something that was really unheard of um, uh, in the past. And sort of the idea there, right, is if you have a price compare system, at least I know this, how SDSU does it through Verba, is students were going there anyway, they were going to the Amazons and, and Chegs anyway, so the idea was if you can put up their price against the campus store price and they want to click over to lowest price, that's fine. And the campus gets a little bit of commission off that. Yeah, I think that's one way of looking at it. The way I really look at it is also that most consumers come to uh, the course materials process thinking that the campus store has the highest possible price. And that is a pretty pervasive thought process. And so in order to attack that, I think you have to you know, every retailer claims some kind of low price or value proposition. But I think, you know, students want to, um, they want to see, uh, they want you to prove it, not just say it. And so I think um, 
Yep. You know, by showing other people's prices, it might give me opportunity to gain a sale that I didn't even have a chance at before. So if somebody saw a lower price at a competitor, well, I didn't change anybody's mind. That's what they already thought when they went there. But if they see a lower price here, I may have not had a chance at that business at all. And now I at least have a chance. And that's all I think most retailers are really asking for. That's a really good way of looking at it. And uh, just before we go further, we I've used a couple different terms myself here. So what are we calling it these days? And you as an expert in the field, what do you call it? Are, are we calling it digital learning tools? Is it course materials? Is it eBooks? Or does still textbooks work in some way? You know, we primarily refer it to course materials. Um, sometimes we also use the term content, so course content. Course content. Yeah, I think that's a, that's, that's a good catch-all there. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between um, Amazon and UC Davis uh, campus stores? I know you guys were innovators in that field about five, six years ago. Can you sort of talk about how that progressed and how that relationship started? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, Amazon has been right in the middle of our campus store now um, for quite a few years. I think we started our relationship with them, I believe it was 2014. And... Um, really morphed from our price comparison website. We were actually Verba's first client for price comparison. And, you know, you mentioned that one of the things you do receive when a student purchases from another retailer is you get sort of a referral commission, usually around like 2% or so. And that um, commission got the attention of Amazon. And so they started noticing that in their top 10 textbook affiliates, that an institutional college store was in their top 10 um, referrals. And so they thought it was really unusual that um, uh, an institutional store was um, referring so many people to Amazon, but it was really just through, you know, the price comparison service that that was taking place. And so that's sort of how we got on Amazon's radar. And so um, we, uh, I got a phone call one day and we had a conversation and uh, wondered if there wasn't a way that we could find some kind of mutually beneficial way to operate, um, like we uh, sort of were doing with, uh, you know, unintentionally, I guess, with or accidentally with price comparison. And through that process, you know, it came apparent to us that, you know, we were, you know, maybe, I don't even, I, I would venture to guess that Amazon's textbook sales don't even represent maybe 2% of what students purchase from Amazon. And so I think a lot of college stores are so focused on that purchase. And when in reality, people are buying Tide laundry detergent, I mean, you name it from Amazon. And this allowed us an opportunity to gain some of that revenue that was just leaving campus and, and had no connection to us whatsoever. And furthermore, it, it wound up really gaining the trust of our students, similar to how price comparison did in that, um, you know, they say a lot of people say that they put students first. Um, but you've actually proved that to us with some of your programs. And so that's sort of how it all got started. And now we receive about $400,000 um, a year from Amazon, and we redirect most of that money to fee waivers for students for both course material grants, commencement regalia grants, and also um, our connection to campus recreation. Now we have a recreation fee waiver program that's also funded from uh, those Amazon revenues, things that we would not be able to do without that revenue. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the the psychology of risk because it, you know, it almost, when you're talking through it now, it, it 
sounds sounds great and you guys have had great success with it but five or six years ago you know i think there was a lot of questions in the industry and i think as sort of a, f a first mover you open yourselves up to those kind of questions and i don't know were, were people looking at you side eye at conferences and that type of thing you know the whole phrase fox in the hen house comes to mind um just can you just walk me through that and and, and, and able to pull it you know to to put a program out there like that when amazon was sort of considered you know, sort of the, the retail killer at that point. I'm, I'm assuming that needs buy-in from campus leadership and whoever you're reporting to at that point to be comfortable with that type of risk. Absolutely, and I think that, you know, it's one of the things that I, I feel incredibly fortunate about um, working where I work is that this campus and the leadership within student affairs is very tolerant of risk and that, you know, we are just outside Silicon Valley. We're in Northern California, and it, I think it's pretty much in the DNA of Northern California that every successful product launch or new technology um, is almost always viewed with extreme suspicion at the beginning. And it's somebody always really taking, uh, you know, a concept and, and bringing it further than anyone else has ever done. And without doing so, um, you know, you don't really achieve anything um, extraordinary and so it definitely took a lot of uh, convincing um, of people that uh, but putting people first or putting students first is really what sells it so it's yeah. very difficult for any administrator to make an argument that something that doesn't benefit students um, that you know you can clearly articulate how it might benefit students it's very difficult to be against something like that and so certainly you know, my peers within the industry were extremely critical. Many of them still are. Um, and that's okay because those same people aren't giving anything to their students in terms of course material commencement or recreation fee waiver programs than I am so I can hold my head up high and feel proud of what we've done here. Um, and we wouldn't have been able to do any of that if we didn't take this take that risk. And I was just going to ask you about that. I was about to say, well, not, not for you to brag or anything, but you basically won or... Is it the case that not everybody recognizes that you won, and that you, not the whole industry has come around to your way of thinking yet? Yeah, and you know, I, I think it's going to take a really long time for people to do so. I mean, I think you know, most if you read most of the, uh, whether it be not necessarily uh, specific to campus retail, but just booksellers in general, you know, Amazon is still viewed as sort of you know the kind of arch enemy of the of the book-selling world, I believe. And, you know, that's certainly one way to look at things, but, um, you know, many of those same people do a lot of shopping at Amazon themselves. Yeah. Or, you know, I heard publisher reps for years condemn Amazon, and then when their uh, children got to college age, um, they found themselves, instead of going to the college store through the publisher, going to Amazon themselves. So yeah. I think, you know, it's very easy to put your moral flag in the ground um, and I, I really don't mind anyone who thinks you know everyone's entitled to their opinion I respect everybody's opinion um, but you know I think many of the people who voice that opinion are a little bit hypocritical because they actually shop at Amazon themselves so given current market forces how should campus store leaders think about collaborating with third parties on course materials going forward um, you know is the concept of you know a, a Frenemies still valid, or would you just call it a, a partner at the end of the day? 
Well, I think there's, I think with many external and internal entities, there are common um, areas that you can find mutual success. And I think looking for those is really what is important to do because everything has a threat to it, right? But lots of other things have benefits too. So you're always doing your cost-benefit analysis. There's very few things in life that are all benefit with no cost. And so I think you just have to sort of weigh that. Some people get so hung up on the cost that they don't really look at the benefit. And I think when you look at partnering with third parties related to course materials in particular, I really think it's critical because, you know, an independent um, single unit campus store division would have a very difficult time matching the resources of any of the technology providers or others in the marketplace. Um, You know, even internally, I think, you know, the library was once viewed as a competitor, so was the learning management system. And on our campus, you know, when faculty go to our adoption website, we show them the free resources that are available in the library in case they want to consider that instead of paid content. And so really determining what's your mission. Is it really to make money or is it to help students succeed in college? And do you embrace the campus's overall goal of time to completion, retention? Yep. Or... Or are you just trying to gain market share? And I kind of think you can do both because I think when you do what benefits students, everything else just sort of falls into place. So $40, is that sort of the magic price point now when it comes to course content? I, you know, I, I think a lot of people might be surprised to know that costs, at least digital learning costs, uh, you know, e-textbooks, that th- th- those prices have uh, actually maybe gone down in the past couple of years, as much as uh, 50%, whereas before that, it was just a hockey stick growth of, of, of price points. Yeah, you know, for us, we actually think entering triple digit is sort of the magic price point. We see um, dramatic uh, market share declines when, as you approach $100, and we have really graphs that can show, um, particularly with inclusive access, where students are opting out um, of a digital program. We know exactly because we're the sole provider of some of those things, so there, you can sort of discount external competition because the way the program is structured, um, you know, we're kind of the primary source. Um, and we find that the lower the price point, the higher the sell through, just look what our economic textbooks have always told us. I always felt like it was kind of ironic that the publishing industry that publishes um, price curves in all of their economic textbooks seemed to think it didn't apply to them. Yeah. Um, you mentioned inclusive access, and I believe Vital Source and Redshell both say somewhere, you know, around two thirds of their sales now are attributable to inclusive access. Um, can you can you tell us what that is and how big of a game changer it's been? Absolutely. So. Inclusive access is just sort of a digital distribution model where, you know, we started looking at, um, on our campus at least, um, how we were delivering digital content. And then when we first really started looking at it, it was mostly ebooks, but it was also what we call adaptive digital content, which are things like um, Cengage, MindTap, Pearson, MyLabs, and Mastering Products, and, and, and McGraw-Hill Connect, those kinds of um sort of uh, adaptive interaction versions of textbooks. And so the way college stores were traditionally selling those things is we had a barcode on the shelf, and you would take the barcode off the shelf, bring it to a register, 
to pay, and then you would get like a username and password to use to access that material. And so when we really thought of the way we were doing that, we were making students come in and wait online during a very hectic business period, the start of the quarter, and all they really had to come in for was to pay, and was that really um, consumer friendly? And we, you know, we always compare ourselves to the music industry, and so imagine that when MP3s started coming out, that instead of going online and just downloading it, that you had to go into Tower Records, take a barcode off the shelf, yeah. scan it at the register in order to download a song. People would think that's crazy, yet that's pretty much how the collegiate retail um, marketplace was selling digital materials. And so we thought, we know every student who's in a class because we're connected to the campus, and we have the ability to bill every student, and why don't we make it easy for the student? And the, the default is, the name inclusive access means everyone starts with access to the content. The way that the traditional model has been is everyone starts without access to the content. And that seems like the opposite of what we should be striving for. So that was the sort of birth of the concept. And um, and so, you know, it's become fairly large, but it's primarily a digital program. And there's still a lot of faculty that are using print, although we're seeing that um, start to dramatically shift. You mentioned the music business, and they were way late at the beginning of the 2000s with piracy and Napster. Um, how prevalent is piracy these days when it comes to learning tools? I actually think it's extremely prevalent, um, particularly on the West Coast. And we've been seeing it in California here for more than 10 years now, but when I've talked over that time period with a lot of my peers in the Midwest and East Coast, they hadn't seen much piracy at all. And um, many technological trends do start in, in California where all of the tech companies are and where Napster and everything else started, which started the music revolution. And we've now seen it be pervasive for a really long time. And it's just really starting to spread to the Midwest and East. My peers there are now talking about it. They hadn't talked about it before. Um, I think it is extremely common. We did... Uh, uh, we had a student group that we did a survey of and we asked the question, uh, how many people in here at least one time during their college career has downloaded um, copywritten material without paying for it? And every solitary student in the, in the uh, survey group of about 30 students raised their hand. 100%. So, 100%. Now, that doesn't mean they do it for every course, yep. but they've done it at least once. And so I think it's very similar. It's very naive for people to think that if somebody would do it for a 99 cent song, that they wouldn't do it for a $300 textbook. And so it really just seems really obvious that this is going to become more and more pervasive. Solutions? Well, I think the solution is already um, students are starting to, you know, I recently read a fascinating article on a higher ed newsletter um, that was talking about how Generation Z prefers YouTube over textbooks. And one of the most interesting statements to me um, was a quote from the student that was interviewed at the very end of the article. And the quote was, books feel old to me. Mm. And so I think that as students are so used to consuming rich media content, and, and also having that content adapt to their performance and not give one-size-fits-all 
approach to learning when every student comes to class with a different level of knowledge that, um, you know, I think you're going to start to see um, more students rejecting print. And so digital is very similar to software. So it's more of a licensing model versus the download of an ebook. And an ebook is what is really something that gets pirated, whereas course, uh, you know, materials that are digital in nature and adaptive in nature, each student has a unique experience, so you're actually just paying to access the software, very similar to how our graphic design students have always paid for a license of Photoshop while they're in their course. That, to me, seems to be the solution to piracy. It's not only the solution to piracy, but it also meets the student demand who are asking for different kinds of content that are you know, different than what students are referring to as textbooks just seem old to me. Do you consider every student walking on campus now to be a digital native? I mean, you think of iPads, I believe were released in 2010. So, you know, a lot of these students maybe don't remember too much of the world without learning on a, on a tablet. Do you think we're there? We're at the digital native part yet? Or we still have a couple of years to go? Well, I think we're there to a certain extent, but I also think... You know, one of the things that higher education often has to address is the issue of equity. And I still think that there's a huge percentage of households within the state of California that uh, do not have broadband access at home. So, yeah. you know, I think that they probably used lots of digital materials in their K-12 coursework. Um, but I still think there's, you know, it's surprising to some people, particularly in a state like California, which is has such a reputation of being know, the epicenter of technology, that there are so many um, homes that don't have broadband. You touched on the idea of money. Um, should campus store leaders still think of learning tools as, as a department, you know, as camp, you know, campus materials, course materials, as a department that should turn a profit, or is that antiquated thinking at this point? I'm not sure profiting from course materials was ever an appropriate line of thinking, um, but it certainly was prevalent for decades, and it was certainly the mindset from which I was trained early in my higher ed career. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a big difference between profiting and being self-supporting from the sale of course materials. Right. So I think being self-supporting, which is adding a margin, so not selling things at cost, but I think it's still a widespread expectation. I, I it being so for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a decision that each campus needs to make. I work on a campus that believes course material sales should be cost recovery only versus a profit center. That doesn't mean we sell them at cost, but cost recovery, meaning whatever it costs us to deliver it for, and to keep the lights on and the payroll going, um, but not so that we're generating you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in excess profits that can be used for another purpose. Um, so I think campuses will make the decision on whether or not to profit from course materials based on what their own particular values are. You know, I think a great example of that is, you know, about six months ago, a bunch of UC students went to the UC office of the president and said that they wanted UC to practice what they teach. And by 2025, they wanted carbon-free electricity system-wide. And there were a whole bunch of people who said, um, oh, you can't do it, it's too expensive, the technology's not ready yet. 
but the students told the system that that's what their values were and the university needs to respond to those values. And so Janet Napolitano announced an initiative where the system was going to uh, go carbon-free um, energy by 2025. So I think it's a value decision. I think there are plenty of um, campuses that won't make the same decision and will want to profit from it. But, um, you know, so I don't think there's like one answer to that question. That's pretty powerful. And lastly, you mentioned YouTube. Is there anything next in the evolution of course content that you have on your mind as far as what students are looking for in the next few years and how things are going to change? Yeah, in addition to what I already mentioned, that students are looking for like a more rich media experience than the printed experience they have. Um, I think they're also really looking for a less confusing marketplace. And so if you think of why college stores were originally created, it was really to like aggregate course information so you can make it easier for students to find their materials in one place and in a place that makes financial aid transactions easy. And so with digital and nowhere low cost content, you know, sometimes referred to as OER, um, this traditional aggregating role of collegiate retailers you know, has been slipping away. And uh, the future involves collegiate retailers to, I think, step up their ability to deliver digitally and provide um, easy linking to content used in courses wherever they are distributed from. And so I think that's one of the main things that students are looking for instead of not just the rich content, but also a much less confusing marketplace than it is today. And finally, with regard to that, I hinted at this during the our inclusive access conversation. But I think if you look at how higher education delivers services, there's something unique about course materials that is done in a way that's different than everything else. So if you look at, um, you know, like take the two other departments that I oversee, so recreation and the student union. So every student pays a recreation fee whether they use recreation services or not. Yep. Every student pays a student union fee whether they ever walk in here or not. Every student pays a bus fee whether they use the bus or not. Every student pays the mental health fee whether they use mental health services or not. That's the model that has allowed costs to go down and um, services to be available to everyone in an equitable manner. And if you look at how we provide course materials, it's the exact opposite of that. We it's sort of like everyone's on their own. And so there can be a lot of arguments that course content is core to the academic mission of college campuses. And I think, you know, we've been talking about the problem of cost and textbooks for, you know, I don't know, 60 years or more. And it's a topic that never really goes away. So that's kind of what I think is also next in the evolution is sort of writing what was wrong with this market to begin with. And I think it's going to take some bold risk takers to sort of make that move. And then similar to inclusive access, um, hopefully it will start to spread across the country. Thanks to Jason Lorgan for giving us pretty much everything we need to know about the state of course content in higher ed in fall 2018. Hit us with your feedback at thecampusretail at gmail.com. Till next. Coyotes!